0: Legend is told of a man who traveled through Southeast China many centuries ago, kept all his food in a clay jar, and when it was time for a meal, he would put the jar over an open fire and warm whatever was inside. The jar held a variety of ingredients, but being near the coast, one night it had shark fins, scallops, abalone, and ham, along with a grab bag of other items. He set up camp just outside a Buddhist monastery, and the man began to warm his meal, Soon the smells were wafting up to where the monks were meditating. Though bound by their religion to live as vegetarians, the delicious smell proved to be too great a temptation for one hungry fellow. He ran from the monastery, jumped over the wall, and asked for a bowl of what has since become a celebrated but controversial delicacy in China known as Buddha jumps over the wall. A poet said that it was so good, Buddha himself would have given up being a vegetarian for it. That's a real mythology that is told, and a real dish. Back in 2005, at least, you could still get a bowl of Buddha jumps over the wall. You didn't have to go all the way to China. You could go to a restaurant in London, but it would set you back about $200 for a bowl of this soup. It's super controversial because of the use of shark fins, by the way. In our text tonight, we'll take a look at the most famous soup in all the Bible. Did you realize there are more than one soup in the Bible? There are, there are others. Gideon famously offered some soup to the Lord, the angel of the Lord in Judges chapter 6. In 2 Kings chapter 4, a bunch of prophets are getting a stew going, and, but they get food poisoning from a soup until Elisha fixes it for them. But Jacob's red stew, it's the signature soup of the Old Testament. It's the com- uh, Campbell's tomato. That's the one everybody <laughs> remembers. It's why Esau picks up the name Edom, which would become the name for an entire nation of people and an entire region of the world for a time. Over this soup, the course of history changes. Talk about a power lunch. This soup scandal is the culmination of a family that has drifted into selfishness. Both the sons and the parents show themselves to be driven by self-centeredness in our text. They've drifted away from a spiritual mindset and are living out life on a much lower, much baser level. The result of living that way is strife and rivalry and taking advantage of one another and all sorts of messed upness in their relationships. Meanwhile, God remains faithful. God remains gracious. He remains accessible, showing us that his way is the better way. It's better for us. It's better for our families. It's better for our nation. It's better for everyone around us and everyone who will come after us. God's way is the way we want to go. Verse 19 says this, these are the family records of Isaac, son of Abraham. Abraham fathered Isaac Isaac was 40 years old when he took as his wife, Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean from Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean. And the passages that follow will get a little bit more of Isaac's story, but really the book is pivoting to focus on Jacob now. The truth is, we just don't have a very full picture of Isaac as an individual We know the circumstances of his birth. He wasn't really involved with any of that. We admire his submission to Abraham back in chapter 22. We took a look at that a number of weeks ago. But beyond a few small pieces, many of which are just echoes of things that happened to his father, Abraham, but then happened to him, beyond that, we really don't have a very good assessment of him as a character. Reading between the lines... We have to come to the conclusion that his spiritual beginning was better than his end. It's a sad thing to say, but it seems to be the case. You know, it's hard to finish well in our walk with the Lord. It's not impossible. It's not something that only a few really special Christians can do. No, we all can do it. We all can run the race to win the race and finish well. But so often believers lose pace with the Lord, we drift from our first love, we take up things like legalism or license or laziness and just sort of become slack in our pursuit or distracted from looking at Jesus and and following after him. And it seems like that happened to Isaac. We want to be the kind of Christians who guard against that way and run hard toward the Lord to the end. The Apostle Paul, of course, encourages us to live our Christianity out to the end, running all the way through that finish line. Verse 21 says, Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord was receptive to his prayer and his wife, Rebecca, conceived. Now, I will say this for Isaac. He was the only patriarch who was monogamous, the only one. And that's, that's saying something. To his credit, when Rebekah was unable to conceive for a long time, Isaac did not make the same mistake his mom and dad had made. He didn't make a Hagar mistake. He didn't say, okay, well, listen, God promised me that I'm going to have kids, I'm going to have sons, and so I'll go find someone else. That's what Abraham and Sarah had done, and it was a, a disaster. No, it was clear that the Lord intended Isaac and Rebekah to be the couple from which uh, descendants would come. One commentator calls them a marriage made in heaven. And we took a look at that a few weeks ago. So rather than try to solve his problem with human planning or human scheming, at least at this point in his life, Isaac went to the Lord in prayer. It took 20 years for Rebecca to have kids. We're going to learn that he has his boys when he's 60 years old. So 20 years for him to have kids. And this scene raises some questions about God's work and our prayers. Uh, Did Isaac pray for 20 years, or did he wait for 20 years and then finally get around to praying about it? We don't know. Uh, If he prayed for 20 years, and if God was receptive to his prayer, does that mean that God is sometimes jerking us around, sometimes withholding his good work in our lives because he thinks we need to learn patience or or just you know not be too hasty what's up with that doesn't psalm 84 say this the lord god does not withhold the good from those who live with integrity what's the problem having kids is a good thing for uh, isaac and rebecca god had said he wanted it to happen so what gives why does he have to wait 20 years for it to happen More importantly, or rather more personally, if we are not getting what we pray for, does that automatically mean that we must be failing in some way to do what God wants, and that if we just stepped it up, maybe then God would be willing to throw us a bone uh, for what we're praying for? After all, as I said, God had planned on Isaac having kids. That was a good thing. So what was the holdup? What about those situations you've been praying for month after month, year after year, time and time again? Well, what are we to think? The Bible is very clear and very explicit that God hears our prayers. One of many examples is 1 Peter 3.12. It says, God's eyes are on us and His ears are open to our prayers. The theological reasons why we do not always get a yes response to our prayers are multiple, but here are a couple. First, God works according to a very specific timeline, which takes into account an innumerable combination of particulars that we cannot possibly con- uh, comprehend, right? We're praying about things in our lives from our vantage point, but God's work, is, is his intention is to connect you uh, to people and situations and, and, and to be part of his ongoing work that he is accomplishing all around the world, Right? So we can't possibly know all of the connections God wants to make, all of the timing that God is working together. We can't see the sort of the plane of providence. We look back and say, oh, wow, God providentially worked out these things now that we've come through a situation. But where we are right now as we're praying or as we're seeking the Lord, there's no way for us to see all of the providential particulars that the Lord is working out. And it's a lot. God is working round the clock in every part of this world to draw people to Himself that they might be saved. He is putting together this in, incredible effort um, that he has explained to us on the pages of Scripture for how human history is going to come to an end and the culmination of all of those things. And you and I have a part to play in all of that. Uh, and so we're praying for things, but we can't always know God's timeline, and we can't know all of the particulars that are connected with that situation that you're facing today. And the second theological reason why it often seems like God is withholding what is obviously a good thing for us, we're praying for, Lord, I want this, it's obviously a good thing, so why, why don't you receive my prayer and just give it to me? Well, It can be because what seems obviously good to us may actually be not very good at all or not good yet for us. Consider King Hezekiah of Judah. He's a good example on this level. He got sick. He got very sick. And so the Lord sent the prophet Isaiah to him and he said, hey, King Hezekiah, you're going to die, so go ahead and set your house in order. Well, Hezekiah prayed like he had never prayed before that he would be healed. Uh, God in His merciful grace said, okay, I, I'll receive that prayer and I will let you live 15 more years. That seems like uh, an absolute home run to Hezekiah, right? But during that 15-year period, Hezekiah made some just terrible, terrible mistakes, which led to the destruction of the nation of Judah, ultimately. It led to uh, him having his son Manasseh, who was one of just the, the most repugnant kings in all the history of Judah who did horrifying things. And so Hezekiah could have spent those 15 years in blissful paradise. Uh, Instead, that which he thought was obviously good and was praying for so earnestly was actually the opposite. It wasn't good for him. It wasn't good for his family. It wasn't good for his nation. So we can trust God to do what is right and what is good because he cares for us even more than we care for ourselves. And we can trust his timing and we can trust his providence. But we have to recognize the fact that sometimes those things that we think are obviously good maybe are not obviously good right now, or maybe they will be good 20 years from now if we're applying today's passage to what we're talking about. But on the flip side, maybe Isaac just waited, and then two decades into this thing, he finally prayed about it. We just don't know. We're, it's not specific about when Isaac was praying. Does that mean that you know, God is just sort of acting on a whim, and he's like, well, I'll do it once you pray for it, uh, that he's just waiting around until somebody prayed for Rebecca's pregnancy situation, and he said, okay, now I'll do it. We don't know what was going on in the Lord's mind. We don't know why they needed to have this gap of time, but we are reminded of something that the Apostle James said. That should be uh, an encouragement, but also a challenge to us. He said outright, in some cases, we have not because we ask not. Now, that's a challenging thing to say, well, wait, so God is withholding, and that's not the case. But the Lord says, hey, listen, sometimes, sometimes in your walk with me, You have not because you ask not. And and what we learn from that is that prayer really does matter. It's not just something we fill time with in a church service, or it's not just something that we do right before bed because, after all, that seems like the thing we should do. Um, Prayer really matters. Think of those times in the Bible, specifically the Gospels, when someone came to Jesus, or, or more accurately, Jesus came to them, and He would say, what do you want me to do for you? Now, I don't mean to suggest that God has set himself up as like a genie or a cosmic butler or someone who exists to do what we want him to do. That's not the case. James goes on in that very same passage to say, listen, sometimes you ask and you don't receive because your motives are wrong. But at the same time, the Bible shows that prayer really matters. Uh, God counts our prayer. He, he, he listens to our prayer. He is receptive to our prayer. One of the shortest verses in all the Bible is 1 Thessalonians 5.17. It simply says this, pray constantly. Uh, That's what it says. And and we're commanded to pray because God cares about it, and it matters when we pray. And, And Paul goes on in that passage to say, listen, this is God's will for you, that you pray constantly. Because prayer is a significant part of how we commune with the Lord and how the Lord matures us and teaches us to walk by faith. It's something we can do which brings our thoughts and our desires and our choices into their proper place, and their proper place is in trusting submission to God. And when we are praying biblically, we're coming before God, our creator, our savior, our friend, our king, and saying, okay, I recognize, Lord, that you care for me. I recognize that you made me. I recognize that you are king of kings and lord of lords. I recognize that you have given me commands. I recognize that you have Tensions. I recognize that you have shown me principles that I am to follow after. And so knowing all of those things and knowing about what kind of God you are and how great you are and what your heart is like, now I want to talk to you about this situation that's going on in my life, this lack that I have, this struggle that I'm going through, this person that I'm hurting for, all those sorts of things. And as we pray biblically, The Lord is able then to speak to our hearts and mature us and develop us and help us understand more of who he is and what he might want to do in and through our lives in those situations. And so Isaac's prayer here is a good thing. We don't know how long it was, all of that, but it's a good thing. And it also shows us the tender grace of God because the Lord promised to give children to this family, right? But it's interesting that he waited until Isaac partnered with him in prayer. Listen, God didn't need to wait. We don't know why he did. He didn't need to wait. He didn't need Isaac's help. He didn't need Isaac's approval or his go-ahead or his interest or anything like that. But what we see is that God wanted to include Isaac in this spiritual aspect of what he was doing. He wanted to say, hey, why don't we, why don't we do this together together? Why don't you petition me for, for the, on, the, uh, on behalf of your wife? And so Isaac gets to enjoy the spiritual dividends of what God was going to do by prayerfully involving himself in the Lord's work. And in the same way, as we pray for things, as we go before the Lord, the Lord says, yeah, and now I'm going to include you in the spiritual rewards and the spiritual dividends of those things that you're praying about then something unexpected happens. Verse 22, but the children inside her struggled with each other and she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. They got what they prayed for, but they didn't expect it to be so hard. Rebecca didn't expect to suffer. Uh, her prayer is a desperate one. Hebrew scholars would tell us that she just cries out to God, why me? Why me, Lord? Now, she had wanted a pregnancy. She had wanted a pregnancy for 20 years. But as things regularly go in in our human experience, she she wanted it a different way. And that's natural. And we can't really fault her for that. Nobody wants to have a pregnancy where your twins are punching each other out in the womb. That's weird, (laughs) right? But it is an interesting thing. This this situation does reveal a weakness of our humanity. It's not specific to Rebecca. It's one that we all have as human beings. Even when we get what we think we want, we often don't like the way that we have it. God, give me this job. And then he does. And then it's will give me a different boss. I want this job with a different boss or I want this job with a different office or I want this job with better pay or I want this job without this coworker over here, right? That's a regular sort of experience that a lot of us have either heard someone talk to us about or have experienced ourselves. And it's not that we have to pretend like everything is good all the time. That's not what I'm talking about. But this is one of the, the weaknesses of the human heart is that we are not in our sin natures, wanting to be content, wanting to be satisfied with what we have. Even sometimes when we get that thing that we've been praying for, and we've been hoping for, and we've been striving for it and we get it, and we're like, meh, but I wish it was this. I, I, you know, I prayed for 20 years, but now I wish my pregnancy wasn't so hard. Why me? Why do I have to be pregnant? You've been praying for like 20 years to be pregnant. And again, I'm not trying to take away from the difficulty and the frustration to Rebecca's credit, in her frustration, she seeks out the Lord, and that's really, really good. She's looking for God's perspective on her suffering. She doesn't just take her ball and go home. Uh, She doesn't just fuss about it. She goes to the Lord, and, and she says, okay, Lord, I want to know your perspective on this weird situation and all my suffering. And when she goes to the Lord, he's very accessible, and he's very faithful to give his perspective on it. Now, We know so much more than Rebecca did as Christians in the New Testament age, right? As Christians in the age of grace who have the completed revelation of scripture, we should have a transformed mentality when it comes to suffering and difficulty. We have God's perspective and his mindset. We understand why difficulty and suffering happens. In fact, we have verses that Rebecca didn't have that says, hey, don't think it's a strange thing when you fall into trials and temptations. Don't think it's weird that you might have to suffer in this life. Of course we're going to have to suffer in this life, especially if we're walking with the Lord. And so rather than us being the kind of people who when we encounter difficulty in a a moment of frustration come before God and say, why me? We, We wanna train ourselves to think, okay, listen, I'm struggling, but what God wants is what I want. And it's not that God wants me to suffer, but I know that God loves me and I know that God has a plan and I know that God has said I can count it all joy and that I can be content in every situation that I shouldn't think it a strange thing when, when these difficulties happen. And so I want what God wants for me. And that way our focus isn't on the suffering, but it's on following God's leading in our lives in the midst of suffering. Verse 23 says, "'And the Lord said to her, "'Two nations are in your womb. two peoples will come from you and be separated. "'One people will be stronger than the other, "'and the older will serve the younger. "'When we seek God, we will find him.'" She sought God and she found him. The Lord was ready to reveal answers to Rebecca. Don't be the kind of Christian who goes around giving people the impression that God has no real answers, that you know, we just you know, let go and let God and we just trust and it's all ethereal and nothing's concrete and there's no real answers. Okay, but what about my struggles today? What about you know, this thing that's going on in my life? What about this immense suffering I'm going through? Oh, trust God. Well, the answer is to trust God, but, but God comes to us with lots of revelation and lots of answers and lots, with, lots of concrete explanation of how he works in lives and how he can refine us through these sorts of things. God has given us many, many answers. He's gone to considerable lengths to give you page after page after page of revelation of who he is and what he's done and what he said and and how he acts and how you should act. And so uh, don't pretend God doesn't give answers. He loves to explain himself. And he loves to show us how his work is bigger than the circumstances that we are in. This wasn't just a pregnancy. Something much greater was going on, something really big. And in in a similar way, whatever's going on in your life is not just that day-to-day situation. We're talking about the eternal God who's involving himself with your life. And so it's not just your relationship with your boss. It's not just your relationship with your spouse. It's not just that difficulty you're going through in a tiny microcosm that is in a vacuum from everything else. This is part of the eternal God involving himself because you are a member of his body. And so much more was going on here than just complications in a pregnancy, Now, this message that God gave them would have been a very hard one for this family to deal with. Let's be real. God is demanding that human conventions be tossed out in this situation. He's changing what would have been the normal, go with the flow, keeping up with the Joneses dynamic of parents and and children and brothers and all that. He says, hey, this is maybe the way that everybody else does it, firstborn, all that stuff, but no, 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 no. I have something else going on here and God is the one in charge. And this family, the family of faith, should have made it a point to rally together around this prophecy from that moment forward. Instead, once we turn the page, it seems that everyone has sort of slowly drifted from the Lord into selfishness and and self-orientation. Though the passage starts with parents in prayer, By the time we get to the next section, there's a lot of dysfunction, self-centeredness, and uh, just broken hearts. Look at verse 24. When her time came to give birth, there were indeed twins in her womb. As usual, this Bible prophecy was fulfilled literally and actually and physically, not allegorically. It wasn't allegorical twins. They were real twins. And so, again, we're gonna point this out as often as we can. God's prophecies are true and literal. There's no reason for us to think that 2,000 of the 2,500 prophecies in the Bible were true and literal, but the last 500, those are just all make believe. Those are all just in our head. Those are all just allegorized. That's silly. Verse 25 says The first one came out red looking, covered with hair like a fur coat, and they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out grasping Esau's heel with his hand. And so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when they were born. So they had a little bit of a sense of humor in naming the boys. These are real people. Harry and Heel were their names. It's kind of funny. Esau looks like a little animal when he comes out. Now, his name speaks of his carnal nature. And as he grows, we discover that he has no interest in spiritual things, no interest in covenant, no interest in God's work, no interest in any of that. He is all about the human physical satisfaction that he can get after. Jacob's name, on the other hand, has different shades of meaning. It can mean heel grabber, of course. It can also mean the one who trips up. That will be true a bunch of times from here on out. It can also mean may God be your rear guard. And certainly we're gonna see that God had this man's back even though Jacob didn't deserve it, even though he wasn't following after the Lord for much of his life. Verse 27, when the boys grew up, Esau became an expert hunter, an outdoorsman, but Jacob was a quiet man who stayed at home. Based on this description, it seems like these guys ended up being trust fund kids, if you ask me. Who is tending the flocks? Who is planting the crops? Not either of these guys. I don't know what they're doing. Well, we see what they're doing. Instead of carrying out the calling that this family had of of raising flocks and doing the things that we saw Abraham doing and that we see like Jacob and his sons doing once he's walking with the Lord, what do we see? Esau just spends all his days hunting, day in and day out. Jacob, he's dabbling as a chef and he just hangs out in the tents. Personality-wise, the boys are presented as opposites. One loved the fields. The other one loved the finer things of life. Esau would grow to be a bit wild, Jacob a bit wily, and so we see this this big difference. But again, neither one of them, this is not a Cain and Abel situation. These are two guys that are just kind of loafing and living off of the fatness of, really, of Abraham and, and their dad Isaac. I don't see any of them doing what what the Lord had called them to do. Verse 28, Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for wild game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. What a sad verse. There are just so few examples of good parents in the Old Testament. You know, if you haven't sacrificed your kid on an altar, (laughs) on the altar of Molech, you're way ahead of just about all the parents in the Old Testament. But what a sad thing. But listen, a statement like this should remind us that when Christ comes into our hearts, he transforms who we are and he intends to reshape everything about us, including our relationships and how we relate to people. Becoming a Christian and being saved is not just about escaping hell and getting to heaven, which is obviously the primary concern. But then the Lord says, I want to reshape who you are and how you interact with people and how you relate to the world. And God then says, what I'm going to do is enable you to love the way that I love, and I love unconditionally. There is no place for this kind of favoritism in a Christian home there just isn't. And and we want to always be allowing the Lord to transform the way that we love others. Because you get all the way to the New Testament, and not only are we not talking about, hey, don't love one kid and not love the other kid, obviously. We get all the way to the Jesus says, I want you to love your enemies. Those people that hate you and those people that want to hurt you, I want you to love them unconditionally the way that I love you. And so, Sad verse, but it puts in perspective the difference between walking with Christ in this day and age. Now, we're told Isaac loved Esau because he had taste for wild game. The Hebrew says, for the game in his mouth. And so we have to conclude that Isaac has become somewhat carnal, somewhat materialistic in the way that he is interfacing with the world. Even in this favoritism, which is a gross thing, but He doesn't prefer Esau because of who he is. He prefers him because of what he does. He says, you put put this wild game in my mouth. That's what I really love. So whoever's putting wild game in my mouth, that's, that's who I prefer. What a sad thing. If Rebecca's line was, why me? Why is this happening to me? Why do I have to suffer? Isaac's is, what have you done for me lately? My mouth's open, drop something in, Right. So, we're seeing these flashes of selfishness in each of the characters. Bruce Waltke points out that Adam failed in eating, Noah failed in drinking, Isaac failed in tasting. These moments in Genesis where God's people chose to give in to sensual temptation, they really fouled up things, they really marred what should have been glorious spiritual experiences. John, in his first epistle, warns us about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. He doesn't say, once you're a Christian, that doesn't matter anymore. He says, no, be, be worried about that. He, at the end of that letter, he says, little children, speaking to you and me, he says, guard yourselves from idols. Watch out for those temptations. Don't drift off into a way of life where you think, well, yeah, me and God, we're like this, but now I just go over here and, and I'm all about satisfying my... my My earthly desires. When we let those sinful seeds into our minds, they will grow and they reroute our thinking and they pervert our relationships and they cripple us in our walk with the Lord. And that's what we're seeing happening with Isaac here. Verse 29, once when Jacob was cooking a stew, Esau came in from the field exhausted and he said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stuff because I'm exhausted. That's why he was also named Edom. Now, let's think for a minute. Let's get real. Esau comes in from the field. Where does he come into? He comes into a home, tents, with astounding wealth, tons of servants, no lack of provision. Sure, he was worn out, but he could have walked into the next room where there was undoubtedly sacks of grain, raisin cakes, some kind of weird jerky that you make in the (laughs) desert, right? Instead, He sees a soup right in front of him, and that became his focus. That became his sort of obsession for the moment. Esau was all about immediate gratification. I want that. I don't even care that I could just go over here and get something else. Esau and his descendants in the region where they live would be forever known as Edom because of this. Red stuff. That's what it means. It reminds me of the old Seinfeld episode where George Casanza orders a T-bone steak, hoping his co-workers will give him the nickname T-bone. He wants to, like, punch up his personality. So, T-bone. Verse 31, Jacob replied, first sell me your birthright. Jacob was ready to exploit his brother's weakness for his own gain. Whenever there's a natural disaster, the news will inevitably run a story about price gougers. You know, in the hurricane, you have the person who goes in with the, the generators who, or the water filters, and they're, they're charging lots and lots of money for it, and everybody's all up in arms about it. Esau just wants what's in front of him. Now, Jacob has a longer view in mind, and he sees that he's got his brother sort of uh, weak and cornered in a little bit, and he knows his brother is too selfish and too uh, unwilling to put off gratification to just walk into the next room or into the next tent or tell another servant, hey, get me some food. Remember, Abraham had like hundreds and hundreds of servants. They still have these servants. They still have this wealth. They still have all of this stuff. So Jacob's got his brother, right? He wants that position that he's been fighting for since he was in his mother's womb. He wants the birthright, granting him a double portion of the inheritance, granting him a place of honor and the leadership in the family. His price tag here is absolutely selfish and completely uncompassionate. After all, his brother is hungry. He's playing it up a little bit, but he's hungry. And here's Jacob. He has a pot of stew, and he says, no, I'm not going to help you. I'm not going to feed you until you give me way more than you should give me. Had this family submitted to God and trusted in the Lord's commands, all this rivalry and posturing and resentment and cheating could have been avoided. According to God, the birthright already belonged to Jacob, but clearly the parents not agreeing with God. They weren't moving in that direction. And though Jacob wanted something that God had said he would ultimately have, he was trying to snatch it up in a sinful, fleshly, immoral way. If we use worldly methods to try to do God's work, it is not God's work. You may get a hold of what you were aiming for, but that birthright did not come from the Lord in that moment. You took it from your brother in his moment of weakness. Esau has his part to play. Esau's guilty too, all of that. But no one can look at what Jacob did and said, wow, you did did such a good thing. You honored what God had said he wanted to do in your life. And so when Christians turn around and use worldly methods to try to do God's work, you can pretend you're doing what God wants you to do, but it is not God's work. Verse 32. Look, Esau said, I'm about to die. So what good is a birthright to me? You know, for being a big, tough hunter guy, this guy's a drama queen, right? <laughs> and he's gonna, we're going to see that happen more and more, but whatever. This is stupid. He's not about to die. He's simply too selfish to walk into the next room. Now, Hebrews 12 tells us that that is so. That it wasn't about hunger or survival, that Esau was a godless, immoral man who cared nothing about the birthright, particularly when it came to the covenant aspect of the birthright, which God was passing through the firstborn. Hebrews says outright, make sure you don't live like Esau. That's what it says to you and to me. Esau cared about a single meal in the here and now. What about 10 years from now, man? What about your family or the generations that come after you? None of that crossed his mind, didn't care about any of that. He was just about his belly in the moment. Verse 33, Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore to Jacob and he sold his birthright to him. And then Jacob gave bread and lentil stew to Esau. He ate and drank and got up and went away. So Esau despised his birthright. Lunch that day was like a meal at Panera. You get soup, a sandwich, a drink, and spend a lot more than you should have. It's just so much for a piece of bread and some soup. Interestingly, we have to note that Esau didn't consider his promise to be worth very much. Because later on, when it's time to receive the blessing of the birthright, what does he do? Does he go in and say, well, I did sell it for that soup after all? No, no, no. He still expects to get the firstborn share. He's a selfish man driven by physical appetites. God doesn't matter. Covenant doesn't matter. Family doesn't matter. His words and his promise don't matter. He just wanted immediate physical satisfaction. But guess what? Living that kind of life never leaves you satisfied. Your pursuit of satisfaction only leads to you inheriting the wind. And you lead yourself into ruin. Now, Jacob did a trashy thing. And we'll spend a lot of time, a lot of weeks, seeing him make mistakes and seeing how the Lord brings him back from spiritual ruin. But as Derek Kidner comments, the chapter does not close with, so Jacob supplanted his brother, but so Esau despised his birthright. This was a significant historical moment. It's a major turning point for this family and for the drama of redemption. Jacob's price gouging is bad, but it's not so wicked as Esau's contempt of covenant contempt of what God had said. But when we look at these verses, we have to conclude that selfishness has sadly infected this family. We see Rebecca speak. What does she say? Why me? Why do I have to suffer? We see Isaac speak and he he doesn't speak, but we see Isaac act and effectively he's saying, what have you got for me? Who's got game for me? Jacob's saying, why wait for what God has promised when I can just steal it today? Esau says, what good is a birthright? Who even wants that? Everyone's thinking about self, and it leads them down these sad roads where parents are preferring one kid over another, where brothers are taking advantage of each other, where individuals aren't thinking at all about how their choices might impact their families and their futures. And so the great family of faith at this point in time, completely dominated by individualism, had this family paused and remembered the Lord. And remembered his will and his ways and his revelation, had they remembered to worship, then they would have known the satisfaction they each wanted. What do we learn about Abraham at the end of his life? His spiritual end was better than his beginning. And what does it say at the end of his life? And the Lord blessed him and everything, and he was contented. He was full. He was just all the way overflowing with the grace and goodness of God. Not because everything was good, he had problems. But because he was full of godly contentment. And so they had, they remembered the Lord, they would have known the satisfaction they wanted. Their suffering would have been put in perspective. Their waiting would have had purpose. Their relationships would have been healthy and fruitful. And in the end, they would not be a family torn apart, but one thriving in the grace of God. So what happened? They drifted into selfishness. They didn't think it was necessary to pay attention to what God had said and then orient their lives around what God had said. They were ignoring it, pretending like they could just go the way of the world and it'll be fine, but it wasn't fine. They started to then prize temporal gratification over spiritual growth. And the Bible shows us this so that we will learn and tells us plainly, don't go that way. Don't be Esau, don't behave this way. Don't jump over the borders of God's leading Jump over the walls of God's revelation in order to get your hands on some soup. It's not worth the cost. Instead, you go God's way. All of these things will be added unto you. And he will fill your life with life abundantly overflowing more than we could ever ask or imagine.